some cultures have a real problem with saying goodbye. Well, the reason why we're looking at those things is because we'll come finally to the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And he is saying goodbye. But a bit like in these videos, he didn't just want to say a quick goodbye and that was it. Instead, he just packed in so much into these final few verses. It's just amazing how Paul, even after this long letter, he's still got so much that he wants to say. So we're just going to read these final, uh, final verses in this, this wonderful letter uh, this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and it's verse 11 down to verse 14. Finally, brothers... Goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In many ways we're so removed from this church in Corinth. These people lived nearly 20 centuries ago on a different continent, in a different culture. And so there are so many things about their lives that we can't know. And yet over the past six months or so of studying this letter, I think we've gained a pretty good idea of what this church was like. And so I wonder, how would we respond to them? Would we want to visit this church? Would we want to fellowship with them? Would we ever consider joining them? Or would we just want to stay clear of them and warn others to do the same? Because after all, we've seen how they accepted these false teachers, those servants of Satan, as Paul calls them, who impressed this church, even although they were preaching a distorted, a false gospel. We've also seen how they treated the Apostle Paul criticizing him for his travel plans, his lack of eloquence or charisma, his suffering or his weakness, even criticizing him for refusing to take their money, but instead preaching for free. We've also read about their hesitation to forgive those who had sinned against them, their compromise with the world, their lack of generosity, their immorality, and their quarreling and fighting. I think in many ways, you could come away from this letter thinking that this was a church in a total mess. That there was no hope for it. And that it would be the last church you would ever want to visit. Or ever want to be part of. And yet, Paul does not distance himself from these Christians. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't think that they are a lost Cause. Instead, he wrote right at the start of this little passage, finally, brothers. 
Now, of course, this reflects the reality that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been declared children of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul says in in Galatians chapter 3. And so as God's children, we've all become brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul didn't just state this as a kind of cold fact based on his theological understanding. This is how he looked on these men and women in Corinth. Despite everything that they'd said against them, everything they'd done against them, despite all the ways that they disappointed him and discouraged him, caused them pain, hardship, criticised them, ridiculed them, Paul was still willing to call these Christians his brothers and sisters in Christ. He still looked on them as family. He still loved them. And this is what Christian love is supposed to look like. Anybody in this world can love those who love them. Anybody can be good to those who are good to them. Anybody can be faithful to those who are committed to them. That's easy love. But the love that God wants us to express is a love that goes way beyond the natural. It's a love that is truly unconditional, unlimited, unending. Peter calls us to love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that we should brush all of the the things that are wrong in our relationships under the carpet. It's not that we should just try and pretend that they're not there. But it means that we should love each other with a love that cannot be overcome by sin. It's a love that accepts people just as they are. That loves us despite their flaws, that rejects retaliation and revenge and instead always seeks reconciliation and restoration. And the reason for this is obvious. It's because this is how God loves us. If we put our faith in Jesus then despite all of our issues, all of our problems, all of our failure, all of our rebellion, God is still pleased to call us His children. We read in chapter 6 of of this letter, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God is delighted to call, call us His kids. So if God is willing to love us and accept us in this way, how could we be so arrogant and proud to say that we can't accept each other? How could we refuse to call someone our brother or sister if they've been saved by the exact same grace as we have? Paid for by the precious blood of Jesus shed at the cross. 
So since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So despite everything, Paul still declared his connection with these Christians. He still looked to them as family. But he also believed that God could still work in them in power. This church had problems about with getting on with each other. They had problems in their relationships with each other. We've seen that before. Uh, in, in the first letter that he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he challenged them. He says this, Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And their arguments and their fights had got so bad that they were taking each other to the courts. The secular courts, the very fact you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And those problems, even though Paul had addressed them with his first letter, they were continuing in this church. And so we saw a couple of weeks ago that they were continuing with quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. All of that junk was still in their church. For years, they'd lived with disagreements and division and disunity. And yet Paul didn't believe that they were a lost cause. He didn't think, well, that's them. No hope for them now. Instead, in verse 11, he again called them to live in harmony with each other. Now, there is some debate about what these words mean in verse 11. Okay? Maybe, I, maybe some of you have different translations and you were, you were listening to as I was reading it out and you said, well, that's different from what I have in my Bible. That's because the original Greek words that Paul used in this verse can have a number of different meanings. And Paul doesn't take the time to elaborate on what he means here. And so Bible translators vary in how they understand some of these words. But what I want to do this morning is take these five short commands and see that maybe they they are all connected to each other. And they are presenting one point to this church. So first of all, the first command, or the word translated, goodbye, in verse 11. It's related to the word for grace. And it can be used as a form of greeting or farewell. But it can also mean, and is usually translated in the Bible, as rejoice. Now maybe you think it's strange for Paul to be writing rejoice to this church. After all, he's had to write some really tough things to them, warning them, uh, challenging their behaviour, rebuking them. And yet Paul believed that Christian joy is indestructible. Chapter 6 he wrote that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It wasn't because Paul enjoyed being sad. It wasn't because he enjoyed suffering. It wasn't because he had some kind of martyr mentality that he thought he was, it was, everything was great when he was suffering. But rather this was because even in the toughest of circumstances 
When things from a human point of view looked completely bleak and hopeless, Paul knew that he had so many reasons to rejoice. Because he could rejoice in Christ. This is why he could write from a prison cell to the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Not rejoice because we're suffering. Not rejoice because things are horrible. But we can rejoice because even in those difficult times, we still are in Christ. We still have that relationship with Christ. We are still held in His hand. We're still uh, accepted in His love. So Paul called this messed up and divided church to rejoice. Because despite their problems, despite their failures, Despite the seemingly hopeless situation of their church, they still belonged to Christ. They still were loved, forgiven, accepted by Him. And God was still willing to work in power so they could continue to be transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. Rejoice! God is still at work in your life. Rejoice because you're still held in His hands. Rejoice because you're still loved by Him. So Paul wasn't giving up in this church. So he said in in verse 11, the second command, aim for perfection. Now we mentioned at list last week that this word isn't about kind of sinless perfection. Rather, it carries with it the idea of restoration. So it's used in Mark's Gospel for mending nets. It talks about Jesus, how he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing or mending their nets. And it's the same word that Paul used when he told the Galatians that if, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him Gently. So Paul was calling this church to be restored. To being the Christian community that God had called them to be. He wanted them to mend their relationships. To be reconciled with each other. Through confession, through repentance, through forgiveness. To bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. To forgive as the Lord forgave you. So rejoice and mend what is broken. Third one, listen to my appeal. So in this letter, Paul's used this word to urge his readers to do what he's been teaching them. And so this could be another appeal for, for these people just to listen to Paul and to put into practice what he's re- written to them. But in this letter, Paul has used this word numerous times to mean comfort or encourage. Maybe you remember right back at the start of this letter, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, how Paul talked about the God of all comfort. 
who comforts us in all our troubles. That same word, comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we have received from God. And comfort in difficulties has been a key theme in this letter. So maybe here Paul is just reminding them of that. A final appeal to comfort one another. As God has reached out in love to us. As he has come alongside us. As he has picked us up and restored us to a relationship with himself. So we are called to do that for each other. We must be willing to get alongside each other. To offer our love. And encourage and support each other in living for Christ. So comfort each other. Because the Christian life can be tough. And we need that support. We need that comfort. We need that encouragement. But if we do, then we can, we can go on to live in harmony with each other. So number four, the fourth command is to be of one mind. Now this doesn't mean that we should abandon our, our individuality. The diversity is not a problem in the body of Christ. It's not a problem that we're different. It's not a problem that we have different personalities, different characters, different, different uh, priorities, different ideas. God is looking for something deeper than just kind of outward uniformity. There'd be something wrong if we all kind of looked the same and, and talked exactly the same and, and all wanted to do exactly the same and there was never any disagreement in our church. There'd be something wrong there. Because we've been made different. But God is looking for something deeper than just uniformity. He's looking for the unity of heart and mind. Of spirit and purpose. Of ambition. Of our thinking. So that we are committed, no matter, even in our differences, we are committed to going forward together. Seeking to honour our Lord. Seeking to glorify Him. And of course, this is something that only God can produce. Only God can take people who are so diverse, so different, and bring them together in deep unity of heart and mind. But it's also something that we need to work towards maintaining. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So yes, unity is a gift from God. He has made us one. But we need to do what we can to live that out in our everyday lives. To be of one mind, one heart, one Spirit and one purpose. So Paul finished these five commands by calling them to live in peace. They were to abandon their fights. Stop their quarreling. Refuse to selfishly push their own agendas and instead do everything they could to live in intimate and loving fellowship with each other. Of course, this isn't always possible, is it? But as Paul wrote to the Romans, he says this, If it is possible, 
as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. So we cannot force somebody to be reconciled to us. We can't force somebody into fellowship with us. But we can do everything that we can do to maintain that relationship and to live at peace with that person. So this was Paul's desire for these Christians in Corinth. To rejoice in who they were in Christ. To mend what was broken. To comfort each other. To be united with each other. And fifthly, to live at peace with each other. And to encourage them to do all of that, Paul gave them an absolutely wonderful promise. Verse 11. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, of course, in a sense, God has promised to be with us as his people. And to never leave us. And to never abandon us. Whatever we do, God has promised that he will be here. But if we're in the middle of disagreements and division, if we're in a place of disunity, then we may not be able to experience or be blessed by his presence. For example, in 1 John chapter 4 and 20, John writes this, Anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. We can't hope to be filled with the love of God if we refuse to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't hope to experience the closeness of God if we are refusing or if we are fighting with the family of God. Those two things are just incompatible. But if we humble ourselves, if we repent of our sin, if we confess to each other, if we offer true forgiveness and reconciliation, then we can be encouraged that God is at work in our fellowship. He is healing broken lives. He is mending fractured relationships. And He is uniting us together as His people. So Psalm 133 says this, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, then it goes on, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even, even life evermore. There's a true blessing in living together in unity. And a loss of that when we don't. And so Jesus promised in Matthew 18, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. There's that special promise of God's presence when we come together as a united people. One mind, one heart, one spirit, one purpose. And so if this unity is so important, then Paul encourages this church to express it every time they meet together. So he tells them, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now that's obviously different from a Glasgow kiss. Okay? If anybody knows what a Glasgow kiss is, yeah? 
know what Glasgow kiss is? It's a headbutt. Yes, thanks. Clear. But a holy kiss, that's a different kind of idea, okay? Kisses, they were a common way to express affection and love to each other between family and friends. And so Paul called the Christians to use that everyday expression of love but to take it as a clear and unambiguous declaration of their love and commitment to each other that came from their devotion to Christ. So take what was common in their culture and use it to express their love and commitment to each other because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I don't think this means that we need to kiss each other this morning, okay? I don't want to kiss a guy with a, especially if we've got a beard. Okay? Sorry, guys. We may be more comfortable with a hug, or a handshake, or a high five, or whatever you like to do, okay? But whatever we do, we need to find ways to visibly and unmistakably express that love and commitment to each other. I think Paul is saying, don't just assume it. Don't just imply it. Just say, oh, don't just come to church and say, oh yeah, I love everybody. Go and express it. Make it clear. Make it obvious. That other person needs to know that you love them. That you're united with them. And of course, we shouldn't just restrict this expression of love to each other in church. Paul added, and all the saints send their greetings. He sent the greetings from the wider Christian community to remind these believers that they weren't just part of this one local church in Corinth, but they were part of a universal church of all who have put their faith in Christ. And so we need to find ways of doing that as well. Maybe through supporting the ministries that we, that we do, like the Barnabas Fund that sends gifts to those people who are struggling in persecuted countries, especially in the Muslim world. Ways that we can express the fact that we are connected with them. Or other ways that we can express our unity with other Christians in this community, in this county. And that's so important because Jesus prayed to his Father about us. That they may be one, as we are one. God's heart is for all of us, as his children, to be united in love. And so we need to find ways to express this as an amazing reality. Not just to our local church, but especially to our local church. But also to the universal church. Also to all the other Christians in this community. All those who have trusted in Jesus. But then finally, Paul finished with this amazing prayer of blessing. A prayer of blessing to the, to the triune God. And it seems that he expressed this in the order that we experience this in our lives. So he starts with, may the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way that we come to God, isn't it? Through the unearned, unmerited, undeserved gift of salvation in the person and work of Christ. Remember this wonderful verse that we looked at before in chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. 
so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the grace of Christ in our life. And when we accept this offer of grace, then we're brought into the experience of the love of God. The unconditional, unlimited, unending love that God pours into our minds and into our hearts. Not because of who we are. Not because of what we do. But simply because of who He is. Because He is the God of love and peace. And as a result of that, we are brought into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We experience true, intimate fellowship with God through the person of the Holy Spirit. And then we experience true fellowship with each other through the unity that He creates among us. It's an amazing prayer of blessing. Do you know the amazing thing that just jumps out at me is? That these wonderful gifts, Paul says, will be with you all. Paul prays for these gifts of God's grace and and God's love and God's fellowship to be with all of them. Despite their problems, despite their failures, despite their wrong attitudes, their sinful behavior, Paul believed that God's grace was still available to them. He believed that God still loved them. And he believed that the Holy Spirit still wanted to live within them. This mess of a church could still experience God working among them. So that can be our experience too. Whoever we are, wherever we're from, whatever we have or haven't done, God wants to bless us with his grace and his love and his fellowship if we just allow him to. If we just invite him to do that. So I hope you can see that this is an amazing way to finish an amazing letter. But it's also an amazing reminder that no matter how many times we fall short of what we are supposed to be, God's grace is sufficient for us. We are God's children. Called to live in harmony with God's people. So that we can be confident of God's God's presence. And continue to express God's love. And experience all of God's richest blessings. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.